Just to let everyone know, we are recording this call so that people that do not have the opportunity to listen to it live will be able to listen to it later. So I'm very, very excited today that we actually have the guest author, Gary Rappaport, on the call today. Uh, I am going to be introducing Gary, but I want to say a few things. It's okay if you have not read the book yet. I highly recommend that you buy and read the book. Uh, I've been recommending Gary's book, Investing in Retail Properties, A Guide to Structuring Partnerships for Sharing Capital, Appreciation, and Cash Flow for about 20 years. And I have to be honest with everyone, including Gary, I never read it. I had sat in on many roundtables where Gary shared very generously all of his knowledge on this topic, and I never read the book. I thought, oh, I bought a few shopping centers. I've created a few partnerships. You know, how much could I learn from the book? And shame on me because three weeks ago when I got on an airplane to go to California, the book was in my lap, and I took a look at it, and I went, oh, my gosh, 575 pages. How am I going to get through this? And I will tell you it was the most thorough, most practical textbook and learning education I've ever read in my entire life, and even though I own five shopping centers and an office building that I'll be developing into a shopping center. Gary, I've learned so much from the book, so I highly recommend everyone on the call to read the book. But even if you haven't, we're happy you're here, and we have had a bunch of people send in questions. So before we proceed, let me introduce my friend Gary Rappaport. So Gary is the CEO of Rappaport, based in the Mid-Atlantic. The company provides leasing, tenant rep, management, and development for approximately 15.4 million square feet. Uh, Rappaport Gary's portfolio includes 60 shopping centers and ground floor retail in about 125 mixed-use properties throughout the Mid-Atlantic. And Gary is the principal partner in 4.5 million square feet of the shopping centers managed by Rappaport. Gary uh, is, believes in philanthropy when it comes to charitable causes, but also the ICSE, having served on many, many, many boards and committees, and is a former chairman of ICSE, International Council of Shopping Centers, and a trustee. Uh, his book uh, is absolutely the, what I consider now the Bible on how to structure real estate partnerships and is the basis for many classes he teaches not only with the ICSE's University of Shopping Centers, but also as a guest instructor at Johns Hopkins, Georgetown, American, George Mason University, University of Michigan, and Georgetown Law Schools. So welcome, Gary. We are so, so, so happy to have you here. Uh, well, Beth, thank you. And uh, please interrupt if I'm going down a, a line or a road that you don't think uh, is as relevant as it should be on the time that we have available. I'd like to just take a couple of minutes and, first of all, start that I've been uh, teaching uh, primarily first for uh, ICSC for over 20 years, um, and maybe about uh, 10 years or so ago, they asked me as a volunteer to write uh, this book on investing in retail properties, and then they asked me again to uh, write a second edition of the book. Uh, which I, I did just uh, last year uh, as well. So, in, in effect, uh, first of all, I always tell people I, I don't make any money on the book. I'm a volunteer for ICSC, and it's ICSC that published the book uh, for all of you to hopefully learn by. And that's why I teach. We, we all believe, um, or I surely believe, that you take, uh, first of all, a third of your life with your family. I take a third of my life with then my business. And then I take a third of my life, as my dad taught me, and I help others every way I can. We give the money that we can give. We teach with the time we have available. I, I'm always available to talk to anybody. And if anybody, even on this call, in the future wishes to send me an email and set up a time to talk, uh, talk further about what we're going to talk about, uh, or even come to Washington and meet at some point, I always find the time. Uh, and we all should do that. When I say if I do that, and I teach someone else, then they'll do that as well to someone else as their career proceeds. Uh, so with that, I'm happy to – I know you've got a bunch of questions, uh, and I'm happy to talk about it. I've done about, I guess, at least uh, 30, 30 partnerships or maybe more. 
um, half of them with individuals, uh, or we'll call them, you know, either friends and family or high net worth individuals. And the other half I've done with uh, institutional partners. We presently, we've done deals with GE Capital and Lehman Brothers, and we presently own seven centers with uh, Texas Teachers and Principal Life Insurance Company. But uh, as we go through this, you'll hear uh, I've done a lot more with partners, individuals, and I probably have about five, at least 500 partners on the friends and family side, and that's a growing side of the business, um, which we'll talk more about as the questions are asked. So, Beth, please ask uh, as you feel you'd like to. Absolutely, and I, and, I, and I have to share. So as I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I do this. Oh, my gosh, I do this. We are so – I am the junior Gary, even though I'm not much younger than you, but very late in my career did I start investing. But, you know, a lot of the things that you talk about in your book, for example, you know, buy or invest or develop within 50 miles from your headquarters, uh, you know, I espouse that as well. All of my six are with, literally within 10 minutes of my home. But what I really loved when I first started, op when I opened the book and I started reading and I'm in the preface, on page 14, you talked about your goal setting. And I'm a huge goal setter, as a lot of people on the phone know. And I was like, this guy, you know, I, I always have known you as an acquaintance in the industry, Gary, but um, it, it, all through the book, I kept saying, this guy is, you know, I'm the junior to his, to his, to him and his experience. So we did, we got a lot, and, and also I thought was fascinating is, you know, you grew up with three sisters, and then you had five daughters. So no wonder you ended up in retail, because you were surrounded by all of this, these women who I presume like to shop. I don't know. Is that, do you, do you think that having that, all of those women around you contributed to your love of retail versus office or industrial? Well, I like to say it's made me a kinder, gentler real estate developer. <laughs> well, so we 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 normally I announce the book the book for the book club, and people some re people read it and some people don't, and then we discuss it and we have questions live on the call this time because you know we were so blessed to have you as the guest author. I asked in advance for people to send in questions, and we were bombarded by a ton of questions. So I apologize to those of you on the call that sent in questions that we're not going to get to, but we'll do the best we can. So the first question, uh, Gary, is. What do you think are the essential qualities of a successful real estate developer? Okay. Well, let me um, start by saying, you know, when I, I talk a lot about my model, the model of, of what I do. And, um, and when people listening to it, the question is, the more you hear of other people's model, the more you could decide what you want to take as, as your model going forward. Because we all have a, a balance of risk and return and how much we as an individual can uh, uh, live with. And the answer is not the end-all to end-all to be a real estate developer and own real estate. The answer is to get up every day. And when I teach my five daughters and my ten grandchildren, is you want to get up every day and hopefully love what you're doing. And the more you hear about what other people are doing, the more you can decide if that's what wishes for you. Because I say is that I've had, I have people that work for me. They don't want to take the risk that I take. They don't want to sign on the loans that I'm signing on. But they're very happy in the position they're in with the compensation and the sharing arrangements because it fits their personality. And that's what I want everyone should hopefully have is the ability to get up every day and love what they're doing. And that's what I teach in my classes. And I teach about every three months. And before I answer this first question, but just for you to know, I am teaching as an example here in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University at the end of April in a two-and-a-half-hour class in the master's program. But at the same point, I'm teaching in Las Vegas, and, and I taught last year on a Sunday, and instead of being 35 people in a class here at Georgetown University, last uh, May I taught in front of 500 people at ICSC in Las Vegas, and this year on Sunday, it's only an hour and 15 minute or an hour and 30 minute class, but I know that they're going to have the room set up to at least handle 500 people again. So if anyone is going to be out in Las Vegas and wants to at least hear or meet me, I'm happy to do that and just be to know it'll be on the calendar for that. With that said, let's I say you know when you talk about a successful real estate developer. 
I think most important, whether it's a real estate developer or success in business at all, it sounds generic, but let me tell you, more important than being a good businessman, as I say, is being a good man. And being, you're balancing what you're doing every day on your reputation. We've got 1,650 tenants here. We've got vendors. We've got partners. We've got bankers. When I did my first deal in 1984 with 14 partners, they relied as much on me as they did on the numbers I showed them. And the reason we can raise the equity we do today is because at the end of the day, I've got the name, my name on the company, and here in Washington, people know that I'm a good businessman, but more importantly, I don't hurt tenants. I don't do anything to make the last penny. Uh, I've learned a lot from people what you can do if you want to be a tough businessman or a tough real estate developer. I'm not. I'm a good person, and I handle it fairly in every way, whether it's with a partner, a banker, a vendor. That's the philosophy we set through the company is how do you handle yourself? Because at this point in my career, I can tell you, we raise tremendous monies from lots of partners, and we're continually having people be introduced to, and everybody says, invest with him, invest with the model, invest with this company, because they're good people. And I'll tell you, that's number one, to be a successful real estate developer. As Warren Buffett, I think, is the one that said, it takes your entire life to build up a good reputation. It takes one minute to ruin it. And I can tell you. I, I believe that as well. Well, and, and, and actually, you don't even know this, but I'm so happy to tell you this. Um, you, you, your company invited me to come do a workshop a few months ago, and, you know, we did the workshop in the morning, and then we canvassed for tenants in the afternoon. And I will tell you that when I would walk to – we would go door by door, mom and pop to mom and pop. And the minute we said to them we were with Rappaport – not even your tenants knew about you and your reputation and your properties. And they're like, and they were, their eyes would raise and they go, oh, you're with Rappaport? Yes, show us the flyer. What properties are you, are you representing today? And, and I've been in a lot of companies and canvassed all over the country with different teams. And I've, I've, I've had the opposite experience to that. So that was very refreshing, as, as I'm sure it is for your team when they're out representing Rappaport, that you have such a phenomenal reputation. So con congratulations on that. So I, I personally saw that firsthand. Thank you. So number two, how did you raise your equity for your deals when you first started, and how has it changed? Okay. Well, the history here is, uh, you know, um, I um, – Started the company here in 1984 in a shared office space with, I like to say, where you paid for um, administrative assistant uh, by the quarter hour as someone was there to help you maybe write a letter or send out a FedEx package in one of those WeWork or Regis spaces. And today we're about 110 people here. And when I, but when I, before I started this company, while I first was in the home building business, I worked for a shopping center company. And in, by working with a shopping center company, I ended up gaining knowledge about retail. And that's how I got down this road of retail. You know, you never know what road you're running as your life continues to go on. I mean, I grew, I grew up in, a, in New York. I was born in Brooklyn. My parents were not college graduates. I was the first college graduate in my family. And my father was a tie manufacturer and an undercapitalized uh, garment working type of individual. And that's what I thought I was going to be in. So, and then I ended up meeting somebody in the real estate business and then meeting somebody in the shopping center business and ended up down a road that was totally different than if you had asked me what I was going to do earlier. And when I left the shopping center company, I worked there from 1981 to 1984 and, and I gained a knowledge in shopping centers. Because if you don't have a knowledge in something that you're looking to do, it's pretty hard to go out there and raise money. And I decided that I was going to go out there and try to buy an older shopping center, value-added if I could find one, and, and, and basically, how do you raise equity on your deals? It, I went – first of all, you have to say, how many dollars do you think you can raise? Because that sets the size of the deal. But I went ahead of time before I even found anything. And I went to, and I have no, no family that ever was able to invest money with me. So when we talk about friends and family, it was friends. Mm -hmm. 
It was people I met in the business, people I met in my social life, people that I was going to hopefully have them take a chance with me. And what I did is I went ahead of time and I said to people, you know, I'm looking out, I'm going to be leaving this company, I'm going to be trying some things on my own, I've saved up some money for the next year uh, to be able to live on, and I, um, uh, I just want to show you something, and when I show you something, I hope you're going to be able to invest with me. And in my mind, I might have been able to find out how many dollars I thought that person could invest with me, or I might have said, you know, I hope you can invest with me, you know, maybe $50,000. Um, and what I did is I ended up in my first deal by raising $35,000 in 1984 from 14 partners. I put in 35000 but I didn't have thirty-five. I borrowed it from one of the partners that, that knew me well, and I ended up buying a shopping center that was 25 years old that's in Baltimore with $495,000 of equity, and I, and I was able to get a bank to lend me a million dollars approximately to buy this center and try to fix it up and create value. But that's how we started on that deal. How it's grown differently, uh, in the 80s and 90s, I just kind of grew slowly, maybe one a year. You know, I've been in business here for 34 years now. I don't own 34 shopping centers. I probably own 30. On the average, for the first 20 years of my career, I averaged one a year. One in 84, one in 85, one in 86, one in 88. But I don't sell. And so I end up ending up building up. Uh, but I could look at a dozen properties, but I haven't been able to close on them. But, you know, a lot of it is this diligence ahead of time of getting people ahead of time, understanding the concept of, of how these deals are structured. It's understanding that when you have something, we hope they'll react quickly. And if I needed 14 partners, I could tell you that I remember in that first deal, I probably talked to 35 or 40. And you could say, well, do I really have 35 or 40 friends that would lend money to me? And the answer is, you have to go out there and do all that diligence. And then when, and then today the difference is, the deals are larger, and half of them are with friends and family. In the 80s and 90s, everything for 20 years was just high net worth individuals, friends and family, growing slowly. Then in about 2000, we started doing institutional deals for the last 20 years, as well as continuing to do friends and family, and now we're ending up doing probably 50% institutional and 50% friends and family. And even the model with the institutions are to eventually put them into deals with friends and family. Every institutional deal I have ever done, I still own. As when the institution, which is transactional, wants to leave, I've been able to recapitalize the deals with high net individuals and friends and family. That's awesome. That's awesome. The um, yeah, I, I read that you had a goal. One of your goals was like you, I read that you'd like to do goals. I think it said one year goals, five year goals, and end of career goals. And that one of your goals was to buy one property per year. And when I set out, I wanted to buy one property every two years. And I've been gone from Terra Nova for 14 years, and I own. Uh, five shopping centers, an office building that I'll redevelop, but I gave back. I, I did a deal with BlackRock, an institution, and during the recession we gave it back, and two pieces of land that I've given back. So very, just a very educational experience, but I love that you set goals as well because I think that that's how we get, achieve them, by setting them. So, okay, question. Right. Well, and, and Bethany, answering that a second, one more thing on that. You're yeah. right. I always say to everybody, you know, and the, the cliche is, you know, first of all, you have to have a, I set one year, five year, and end of career. And I have those goals today. And those goals have changed a hundred times. Some of them I've met, and some of them have changed because my direction is, my life has changed. But the cliche is very true. If you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you a reader? Do you like to read books, Gary? I read all the time. I balance it uh, between, of course, business and everything else we do. But I definitely right. want some of that escapist type of reading where at the end of the day, uh, you know, after I've read it a, a month later, I can't remember it. Right, 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 right. 
Okay, number three, how can cash flow and capital appreciation be shared between the developer and his or her investment partners? And I know this is, for those of you that read the book, you got a lot, you know, there's case studies in there, but we had a, a lot of questions about this, and Gary wanted to talk about this as well. Okay, well, you know, that's basically what's on the name of the book. I mean, the book really is, it's not I write investing in retail properties because that's what I know. But it's the exact same thing, whether you're buying an apartment building or, or an office building or whatever you're doing. If the question is, how do you fairly share cash flow and appreciation with your partners so they have a, 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 a reason to invest with you as they balance risk and return? And how are you, because they only could lose their investment, which, but, but you, possibly by signing on a loan, could lose a lot more than that. And how do you get compensated for that added risk, and more important than just the risk, how do you get compensated for all the time you've spent to learn the business so well to create this return for them? That's really what the book's about. And I don't want to get – it's hard to get into a, a lot of time uh, on a phone call about that, but just recognize that, in effect, what you're giving your investors – think uh, the way I like to quickly say – I'll only take a few minutes on this, but think about it this way. I always think about the front and the back. Think the front is the equity. The front is everybody putting their money in. And if you put real cash in the deal, and I put real cash in every one of my deals, and in the beginning of my deals, the first ones I did, I set the unit share price at what I could afford to put in. So if I could afford to put in $25,000 and I needed to raise a million dollars and I had 40 shares, then I have 40 shares of 25,000, not four shares at 100. Because in the beginning especially, I was able to say to people that, look, I'm putting in the same amount of real cash like you are. I'm going to get a promote, a bonus, a sponsorship, a carried interest if I do a good job. But in the, but, but in the beginning, I'm pari parsu. I'm prorated with you. We're all putting in the same amount. So I think about it as the front end and the back end. The front end is the preferred equity. It's what, I'm sorry, the front end is the equity. It's the equity that we're all putting in. The back end is the extra bonus you're going to get if you do a good job. And what you do is you give a preferred return to these people first in cash flow and appreciation. Maybe it's 8%. Maybe it's 6%. Maybe it's 10%, 12%. Maybe after they get that 8% in cash in a distribution. It has to be distributed. It has no, this has nothing to do with tax. Then if there's an extra dollar to spend, maybe 50% goes to that group of equity and 50 cents goes to you. Maybe 75 cents goes to them. Maybe 25 cents goes to you. And the same thing upon sale. The numbers change, but the concept is generally the same. And, and I didn't invent this concept of this bonus or promote or carry interest. Probably some really smart institutional guy said, how am I going to get Gary Rappaport and other sponsors to focus on my deal? You know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to give them a bonus. I'm going to give them something extra if they give us something first. And sometimes they'll even do it where they'll increase the bonus more and more as you give them a more and more of a profit. But again, it's a, it's, it's a learning experience, and what I wrote in the book is primarily, while I write in the book about the institutional side of the business, 90% of the book is written for someone that either has never done a deal before, wants to leave maybe the job they have, and are trying to figure out how to put it together, and, they're, and, and or someone that is maybe a second or third generation within a family where the first generation, everybody signed in the loan, everybody got the prorations, there was no back-end interest based on what they put in the deal, and the second generation or the third generation has the ability to go out and use some of that family money, and now they want to bring in new partners. So the majority of the book is called is really Structuring Cash Flow and Appreciation 101. It's a, it's a primer book for people that have really never done this before by br and bringing in uh, uh, friends and family as partners. Yeah, I wish I would have read it 14 years ago. I would have saved myself a lot of heartbreak, Gary. <laughs> um, so a lot of people 
speak about, you know, how, you know, a lot of the questions were, what's the best way for a young person to jump into the property investing world? But before we go there, uh, you know, so people always ask me, what's the best way for me? You know, you know I meet with students all the time like you do, and 90% of them say, oh, I want to be a developer. And so I, I always want my students to have a taste of, if they, if they can, the leasing world because, you know, we can all be investors, but if we don't know how to increase value, whether it's in a piece of land or a redevelopment or merchandising, you know, that's where I think, you know, the basis starts is if you have a talent with leasing and you've networked with the nationals, the regionals, and the mom and pops, you know, do you, do you agree that leasing is a great basis and foundation for future investing? And, and, and mind you, there's a lot of leasing agents on the call, so, and, and, and many of them, you know, eventually would like to start investing. So, so it's a twofold question. Is leasing the way to start the career to eventually want to invest? Does that help? And then, two, you know, the questions are, how's, what's the best way for a young person to jump into, into doing this? All right. Well, uh, I'm not. I don't say leasing is more important than anything else. It's surely important in the overall scheme of of being able to be the sponsor in an invest and put a deal together. In putting a deal together, when we always, it, you know, I there's three things you basically need to have to to put a to put a deal together as a sponsor. One is you need quote expertise in the area that you're selling to your investors, so they have confidence, and I'll come back to that. Two is you have to have the ability, of course, to raise the equity, and three, you have to have the, uh, the financial capability to sign on a loan, whether it's a personal loan that you're signing for or it's a non-recourse loan. It doesn't matter. You have to have those three things. I mean, think about it. If I went out in the business even today and said, um, by the way, I'd like you to invest with me. This is a warehouse. I've never done warehouses before, but I'm thinking of doing it, and I've always wanted to do warehouses, and I'd like you to invest with me. I mean, who's going to invest with me? So the question, let's go back to that base. And when I talk about it, uh, so I think even those three parts of the, of the equation. I'm here, and I'm the only sponsor in most of my deals, but surely in the beginning deals I did, because I came out of a shopping center environment understanding and having a certain expertise. And that expertise was in leasing, property management, finance, construction, but a little bit of everything. And I also had the ability to raise equity, and I also had the ability based on many different loans I had done earlier when I was a home builder, I had the ability to obtain some debt. But I tell people, if you don't have those three, you don't, I, I, most of the time I don't see one person having all three. I don't see one person being the back-end sponsor. I see two people or three people. I see them leaving a company together. One has, let's call it the expertise to create value in some in some property. Some, someone has the ability to raise the equity, and someone has the ability to sign on a loan, even if everybody signs on a loan. Sometimes if you're raising investors and you have nine, let's say you have nine investors, maybe one of those investors financially is strong enough that they'll sign on a loan with you, and they'll give you, and you give them part of your back-end interest for signing on the loan. Maybe they'll help you raise the equity, and in return for that, you'll give them part of the back-end interest. Maybe one person has the ability to lease and someone else has the ability to understand management or creating value through renovation. Because when you're adding value to a property, surely leasing's number one. But a lot of it is I'm going to renovate the center. I'm going to fix the landscaping. I'm going to put in LED lighting. I'm going to change the pylon sign. I'm going to have enough money for TI and leasing commissions, but I'm going to also fix the roofs. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that are outside of sometimes one person's level of expertise, but together they're able to do that. And thus, you don't have to jump in yourself. You don't need, what I say to people is, it doesn't matter how much your back-end interest is. The answer is you have to do a deal. If there's a 100 people trying to, to one day go out and do a, do a deal as a sponsor, 
one out of a hundred, I bet, is all that actually steps up to that next level. It doesn't matter if it's a 50% back-end interest and you get it all, or it's a 20% or a 10% back-end interest and you charge with two others. The ability to do one deal and move it up, they don't care. That next deal, is, it doesn't matter if you owned 1% or 99%. you got to do that first deal, and then you're on your way. And that's how I tell people to start. Don't be greedy. Just try to do something and bring in the expertise that's needed and share any way you can so that you can get a deal done. Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Just jump in the water. And, boy, every deal I've done, I've learned probably 30 different things that I didn't learn in the prior deal. So and you, you just, it's, it's, and it's fun. It's exciting. All right, so uh, and here's another person, a similar topic, a little, a little variation. How did you personally prepare yourself financially for your first investment? And if you could go back and talk to yourself before your first purchase, what advice would you give yourself? Well, you know, people ask me and they say to me, Gary, you know, and things are much more sophisticated now. If you did things different today, you know, would it be any different than you did before? Could you still do today what you did starting in 1984, 34 years ago? And I believe I could do the same thing. I, I believe that it's more complicated. It's surely more paperwork, but, but I'm a very detailed guy, and it actually probably stops other people from doing it and it's hard to get into, but it's, it's not rocket science, and it's not like starting a car company. It still is the most entrepreneurial business to be in. So when you talk about preparing yourself financially, I think a lot of it rates back to what I first said in the beginning. What's your level of risk, what you can live with? I can tell you that um, from the time I started in business in 1973 till uh, – when I was 22 and until I was 55, I'm 67 now, I signed for contingent liabilities and personal liabilities 100% greater than my assets for 100% of all those years. Um, if you can't live with the risk of understanding uh, what that financial stress or the stress of signing is, it's a really difficult uh, road to run down. And even today, I, because of the, bi the business, the way it's set, I'm building some mixed-use projects, uh, large ones. I, I might sell, sign 25% of the loan, the top 25. Other times I'm borrowing money because I need money to fix up a center, but it's already got a loan on it, and I can't get another loan without signing for it. I'm signing today for over $100 million of debt, at 67 years old, and the answer is, can one live with it? I can, but I can tell you, there's been many, many times, and even now, that I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat, take a shower, and go to work. There, there was a, a man that worked for me a lot of years, and he said to me, Gary, I want to tell you, I love my job, I love my compensation, I love my sharing arrangement, but I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't know how you do it, but if it makes you happy... But I can tell you, I don't want your job. I don't care how much compensation you get. I couldn't live with what you're doing. I have people that live, live here that want to try things. I always wish them well. I always tell them they're welcome back. They always can come up and say hello to their friends. I'll help them any way I can. I always respect someone leaving as long as they give some reasonable time when they leave because they're doing what I'm doing. They're, take, they're actually taking a secure job with a certain compensation, and they're risking it to go out there to answer something, some need in their, in their head that wants them to go out there and do something else. And I have to respect that, and I have to help people by doing that. But I've also seen people come back and say, Gary, I can't do it. Um, I, I tried to get – I've got to get the – find the property, I've got to put the deposit down, I've got to pay all this money that only comes back to me if the deal is closed, I have to sign the loan, I've got to get the loan, I've got to raise the equity, it's a 30-day engineering study, a 60-day close or a 30-day close, I just can't do it, I tried, it's not for me, and I always, always say, absolutely, there's no, there's no such thing as wrong or right. Got to find that place that's right for you. I'm glad you tried it. I've seen people that have said all their lives, I wish I had tried it when I was younger. You know, I didn't have a mortgage on the house, and I didn't have a mortgage on the car, and I didn't have two kids in school, whatever it might be. 
And we all have that. So some people step up and try it anyway, and others don't. But at the end of the day, everybody has to do what's right for them. It's, nobody needs to critique anyone else, whether this is right for them or not. They need to hear. That's like this model. The more you hear stuff from people like me and others, the more you can make an intelligent choice if this is really for you. And if it is, then hopefully there's lots of people out there like me that are going to make it easier for you. You're, you are such a good man. You just really live live what you say. I um, I loved all of that. I, I also sign on every note personally. And, you know, every once in a while I'll get up in the middle of the night. I try not to jump in the shower. I try to go back to sleep. I try to read a book. But I sign on every note as well because that's what I feel that we need to do. And, and I, you're right. There's some people that can stomach that, and there's some people that can't, and that's what makes the world go around. One of the things I loved in your book as a leasing person, you know, I just feel like I'm just, I'm just a rock star leasing person who happens to be now investing in properties. But, and I've, I've been doing leasing for 32 years, and something that, you, I, that I learned in your book about leasing which uh, we're immediately going to uh, change here at Azor Advisory Services is on your flyers, you put the competitors' properties. And I also, along with your philosophy, I love when other properties in my market get leased because that's one less vacancy I'm competing with. But I've never, ever put the competitors' properties on the flyers. And your, your explanation of I want them to have the most information possible so they can make the quickest decision, I loved that, and I'm, I'm changing that with our flyers immediately. So thank you for that, that piece of advice because I thought it was brilliant. Uh, thank you for that. Look, again, when you talk about the model here, so people say to me at times, why, why are you managing and leasing other people's property? I mean, why don't you just do more deals yourself? Because and, and, all you have is your time. And I work, I work seven days a week. I only work here Saturday and Sunday mornings from like 8 to 12. But I've been working seven days a week except when I, of course, Al, look, the model that I have here is my kids – they said to me, Dad, with everything you've done, I don't understand, but you came to every track meet. You came to every choral recital. And I didn't come to every one, but I come to a lot of them because I get them all down in my schedule as soon as I know, and I work my calendars around my family first. But on the other side of it, I allocate lots of time uh, as the time's available, whether it's at night after the kids go to bed or whether it's on the weekends and I catch up and I do a lot of things. But from the standpoint of the model of understanding the market, um, I manage and lease other people's properties for the stability of the management company, to be able to know that I don't, at this point in my career, I built it up and balanced it, one person at a time from nobody to 110 people, but as I've grown the properties. But because we represent about 75 or 80 retail tenants in this market, because we do the retail leasing under 125 high-rise buildings, that we don't own any of them. We don't manage any of them. All we do is the first floor leasing. And we, why do we manage and lease so many other properties in the suburban shopping center side of the business? Is because I now know the rents and the vacancies of every retail property, every urban property, every mixed-use property in this entire Washington area except for malls. And because of that, it gives me knowledge. I never want to negotiate a lease with a lawyer that says to me, I've always wanted to negotiate retail leases. I never <laughs> want to do a renovation with a, on a shopping center with an architect that says, I've always wanted to renovate a shopping center. I want people to be educated. I want them to know everything out there and make a decision quickly, and that's why you go out there and you educate people as much as you can. And then hope, and, and the part of the model here is the, get, you get the best people working in a company when they know their career is hopefully stable. We spend a lot of time telling them what's going to happen if Gary Rappaport's not here tomorrow on this earth. We really do, because we want them to make their career here. We want to manage and lease other people's properties and get all these different commissions and fees so that we don't buy a shopping center for the wrong reason. The, the, we, we, we're not sitting there saying, oh, my God, if we don't buy a center by the end of this year, we can't make payroll. So part, of, And then we want to have an office environment that works for people to say, this is really when I have a choice where I want to work, both from the philosophical point of view and also the actual – place that you're working. And so we try to build a place in, a, in, a, in an office that is not like back in a C space, 
but if, but if so that when our investors come in, no matter how big we are, we look bigger. No matter how stable we are, we look even more stable because we're selling, we're, we're salesmen. We have to perform. We're telling retailers to come to our centers. We understand tenant mix and how we're going to make them successful. We tell bankers, lend us money. They're going to get paid back. We tell investors, believe in us, but we're all doing it ahead of the curve. And the only way, of course, otherwise is to perform. And I haven't performed on every single deal, but I'm very open. I write lots of letters. I tell people what's going on. Even your investors, they understand the risk and the return. What they don't want is to be hidden and surprised. So you've got to continually tell them what's going on. And my investor deals, I send out to my private, let alone institutional, friends and family. We send them out a monthly statement, very detailed, executive summary. We send out every K-1, absolutely, by March 15th. We're never late. We send out distributions every three months automatically into their account with an ACH check and, and tell them it's coming. We know They know when this money is coming. They know how they're doing against the projections, whether it's good or bad. You can't hide it. You want them to be back again, they got to trust you. That's, that's yeah, my boss. Yeah, no surprises is always a big, big, big thing. I loved your investment, your investor letter that was in the book, not to mention all, all of the other forms and management agreements and everything you put. It, you know, I, I just can't get over how generous – uh, you ha- have been and are with with everything that you do, and, and ev- all that you included in, in the book was just it just was blown it blew me away. Okay. And Beth, um, okay. let me tell you one more thing. Wait yeah. before you answer. So Beth, everything that's in that book, if anyone looks, there's lots of financial projections, lots of charts. Um, we have an FTP site. We give it out to everybody when I teach. We were not allowed to put it in the book, but anybody who wants it, you go up in there. It's free. You can download every one of these reports in Excel. You can see all the cells. You can change it. I saw somebody a couple of years ago, and that's why I do it. They, and, they, and then also the investor book. There's actually a new one up on the FTP site, because this one that's in the book is called Davis Ford Crossing. I've actually got another one up there now that we've recently done that's up there. You could, you could download the entire investment book. The entire memorandum that you're going to give to an investor, what you're going to show them, what does the executive summary look like? You know, what does the section on wrap report look like? What do the numbers look like? Because the object of the book and the object of the FTP site is to give people a head start to do it and, and, and not have to reinvent the wheel every time. And so uh, anybody that wants that, you know, uh, what you should do, Beth, and I mean, anybody, just for everyone to know, you know, my email address is G as in Gary, D as in Dennis, R as in Rappaport. So it's GDR at RappaportCO.com, R-A-P-P-A-P-O-R-T as in Tom, C-O.com. Anyone sends me an email, I'll send them the FTP site. They're welcome to download it and see all those things that are in the book and be able to, you know, work from there. Um, that was G D R. We will send it yeah. out. We'll, we'll put it on the website okay. so you guys have it. Okay. Um, again, unbelievable and so generous. I hope that when they do this, they also send you a thank you note because that's another one of my <laughs> things. And I know you don't want that, but we should all be doing that anyway. Okay, ready for another question as we're rounding uh, out the end of our call? We've got a, we've got about 15 more minutes. Okay, so what properties have the best hidden potential for growth? In your opinion, how can direct real estate investing be risky, and what are its potential benefits, and what are the common pitfalls that many investors fall into? So that's a mouthful. <laughs> so hidden yeah. potential for growth, uh, how could it be yeah. risky, and what, are, what would be common pitfalls I, I, that investors yeah. fall into? Okay. Well, you know, everything is related to risk and return, and a lot of it relates to who your investors are. In the beginning, when I first started, when I had a very small investor group, they were all looking for, you know, that, quote, value-added opportunity, even though we don't sell. The model here is we don't sell. We give we give the um, uh, investors an opportunity at the end of 10 years to leave, but we generally don't sell, and we show a return over 10 years. But even on a value-added opportunity, I mean, for, because in the beginning, um, 
the the investors who invest with me, surely if they put in a, the bank, they get you know less than one percent. A treasury bill, you know, they get two or three percent. They put in a bond, they get five percent. They put in a REIT, a, a, like Federal Realty, they get eight percent. So you know when they do something with Rappaport, they've got to get a fairly good return. So you try to balance that risk. But as time has gone on, my investor group has also gone to be more stable and actually want a lesser return and less risk. So you kind of have to kind of always understand, you know, who is your investor pool and what are they really looking for. But I try to lower the risk, most importantly, first of all. When it back in, uh, when I couldn't find anything in the beginning, my first center in 84, Baltimore is about 45 minutes from Washington, and my first center I bought in Baltimore because I could not find anything in Washington that someone was willing to sell to me at any price that made sense, and so I started looking elsewhere. And then I started looking south. I started looking in uh, uh, down 81 to Roanoke and Lynchburg, down 95 to Richmond, down to North Carolina to Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, Cary Garner, Charlotte, Greensboro, and I ended up in 1986 buying a center in Roanoke. And I bought some centers in 88 in North Carolina. And I can tell you, I went back and I changed that. The risk was too great. I did. I, I couldn't oversee it properly. Uh, I sold the centers in North Carolina, even though I don't sell anything. I still own the one in Roanoke and the one in Baltimore. But I went back after 1988 basically about 1990, and said, I am staying in one market, Washington, D.C. It's a fabulous market, but I, you know something? Here in this market, I track every zoning, every comprehensive plan, every county, every town. I know every road. I know where the demographics are. I know where the future growth is. I know the politicians I, I, over many years. I know the communities. We have shopping centers. We give to everything. The baseball, the schools, the, all the things. People know us as someone, as shopping center owners should be, that give back to the community. You want a special exception on something? You want something done that's outside of what is automatically allowed under the existing zoning? When you balance risk and return, I decided to lower that risk by saying, and today, for many, many years, you send me a package in Chicago, Philadelphia, anywhere outside this area. I mean, I go, I go to visit all over the world, malls, mixed-use projects, anything I want to see what other people are doing. But if it's outside of the Washington area, basically for the last 20 years, it goes in the garbage. There's enough here for me to keep a company even our size satisfied in, in the growth that we need to do. We're not, we don't have funds. We, we, every deal stands on its own. The back-end interests don't get um, shared because there's five deals and four are good and one is bad. But at the end of the day, it's always balanced on a benefit of risk and return. So from the standpoint, I'm buying value-added centers when I could find them, and they're almost impossible to find, but at the same point. But to te tell you the truth, I probably know in this market every shopping center from 50,000 feet up. I've been here for 44 years. I don't know who the owner is on everyone. I don't know when it comes up for sale. But when something comes up for sale, I can move on it really quickly. I know if it's right or wrong. I know if it's something I want to spend time on or not. And if it is, I jump on it. I start talking to people. I start putting it together even before I'm selected. And if I'm not selected, I've done a lot of work. And that stuff just goes in a file. And they, people say to me, you mean you do all that work, all that diligence, talk to all those people, Try to put that whole thing together. Make sure you have a bank loan in case you get selected. You have investors in case you get selected. And then you don't get selected? I said, yes. But you know something? I only have to do one a year. I don't have to do one every month. And the right. answer is, you do all that diligence. And if you could do one a year or one every two years as you're doing, Beth, then all that work is worthwhile. Absolutely. I, I uh I largely, you know, concur. I all my stuff, like I said, is in within ten minutes of my house. I've looked at things, you know, forty five minutes away. I haven't won them, but one, my one of my biggest deals, it's small size, but big financially, was I, I was I am involved charitably like you, and I was in the city commission chambers fighting for a budget for my charity when the, on the agenda they announced that they were outlawing strip clubs in my sub in my city of Davie and my my real estate hat 
immediately went on to this Maine and Maine Gentlemen's Club that in two years was going to be out of business, and no one else knew about that. But I did because I was in the, in the city chambers learning about, you know, zoning laws and what they were outlawing, and I immediately the next morning found the tax rolls, who owned it, and uh, an 87-year-old couple out of Jacksonville, and, you know, talked to them and met with them and went and had tea in their living room. And in the end, uh, I did get chosen because I had been, you know, I had much bigger, smarter companies than me go after them the minute the strip club closed. But because I had spent the time and invested the time with them, they awarded the project to me. And um, But it was because I was in that chamber. I was, I was two years ahead of everyone else. No one else even knew that the laws were changing. So being very involved in your community, you learn so much about the market. So I concur with that. The other thing you just mentioned, which I agree with as well, and, uh, and there are people that talk to us all the time, both of us, about, you know, well, you guys should, you know, do a fund. And, and I think like you – I don't like the pressure of having money sitting in a bank and I have to go find a deal quickly or, or to have to, you know, distribute that money to, towards a project. I am a one-off. I do one project at a time, and I go out and raise the money for each project, you know, independently. Because I just – once I find the project, then let's go get the money. But having money sitting around and then I, – I, that, that is what would – freak me out and have me waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, that I would, the pressure of having to put that money out that people counted on. So, Well, you know, I, I look, Beth, on that answer, I, I, I have a different spin. Uh, that's a good reason, but I have a, a, another reason, selfishly for us as the sponsors. Um, your back-end promote is really where you make the big money. If you do a good deal, if you create value, you deserve that back-end promote, and that's where the majority of your, your assets um, um, are, are the, the, the growth that you have in, the, in, in, the, in your investment and when you sell it comes. If you do a, a fund, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but if you do a fund, whether it's a fund with friends and family or it's a fund with an institution, if you have five deals, the calculation of your back-end promote in a fund is the average of the five deals. And if you end up with four, let's say you end up with two good deals, two, one home run, well, let's call it easy here, two home runs, two average deals, and one really bad deal, you, look, you can get your entire back end wiped out where there's nothing. But if you do five deals and they're five separate deals, if you have a bad deal, okay, you have a bad deal. You don't want to have it. You have a couple of medium deals. That's okay. But those home runs will really create a lot of value for you. So I decided a long time ago that I'm not doing funds because I think um, I want to take the risk of raising the money on a deal-by-deal basis and sharing the benefits of knowing that a couple of home runs are going to really create some tremendous value for me. Right, right. Okay, so we have one more question. Um, you've kind of answered it a little bit, but I'd like you to expound on it because I think that, um, you know, I thought I worked a lot, but I don't work seven days a week. So the question is, what is something you do on a daily basis that makes you feel successful, that you feel makes you so successful? All right. Um, you know, um, again, it comes down to the individual. Whether you have people help you or not, uh, whether you do it yourself, I get a lot of comments from people that say to me, you know, Gary, I don't understand. With I know how busy you are, but but you're always so responsive. Um, and, you know, there's leasing people that you call up on the phone and they never call you back, uh, which, of course, nobody on this phone call would ever do that. But, of course, there's other people that you say, you know something, they always get back to me, whether they have the right answer, whether they have an interest in doing the deal or not, but they always at least get back to me. I can tell you, someone sends me an email, I send them an email back. I very rarely go to bed at night without allocating where every email is responded to or I put it in a place to push it off to even the weekend when I could respond. But one way or the other, I respond to every email. I respond to every phone call. And I do it really fast. 
even if it's something like, John, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be able to get back to you on that till uh, this weekend. Uh, nice hearing from you. I'll get back to you uh, this weekend. That could be on a Monday, but at least I got back to him. And if I can't do it, again, we're all based on size, I'll sit and I'll have my assistant. I'll be in the car and I'll say, read through my emails with me. I'm driving right now. Let me tell you what. And then I'll say, call, send an email back to that person. Call that person. Tell them I'll call them back. Set up a time, whatever it is. But you need to make everybody feel that they're important. We sell shares. We, we're doing a deal right now. We were raising, uh, we raised $25 million in equity in five weeks here from January 2nd. We're closing on a deal next week. It's our biggest deal we've ever done. We sell $250,000 shares. That's a hundred shares. We sell three quarter shares. We sell half shares. We sell quarter shares. We sell shares at $62,500 on a $25 million equity raise on a $175 million purchase. And people say, are you kidding? I said, no. I can tell you, the back end, the database, the things we've tried to find, that $62,500 investor is as important to me as that $6 million. And I make that $62,500 investor feel that way every time. They want to talk. They want to meet. They want, we'll figure it out. If you don't have the time and commitment to make everyone feel they're as important as they could be, then you're not going to be as successful as you have the ability to be. And I, I think that that's what you need to do, and that's what I continue to do. And that's time-consuming, but that's part of the model. Can't do it. You can't. You can't do what we're doing. I, I love it. I, uh, I the last deal I bought was this two-story office building. Uh, I think it was 5.2 million. We raised two and a half million, and I have four leasing agents that are in the community who I know that that uh, did a $5,000 share because I, I'm, I'm my mission in life is to get leasing agents to invest because they 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 put a lot of their you know life blood and sweat equity into our business and I'm pushing them to start somewhere just and someone needs to give them a chance and I and I tell them don't you know someone they said I'm going to give you 10 grand I said if you can't afford to lose the 10 grand only give me five (laughs) because you never know it's risky but But I have four leasing agents that committed five grand and I and I exactly I'm so proud of them and I'm I'm and they're as valuable as the guy who gave me a million so right. But Beth, let me tell you. But you know, I, I surely need legal uh, counsel because there are SEC requirements of yes. as it relates yes. to your investor group, and I don't do investors unless they're accredited, because the um, the the amount of my, uh, diligence that's required, the cost of putting out the a book uh, to do something correctly. Uh, is a difference, and you need to go at some point, if one's structuring a deal, to legal counsel to be able to make sure that you're selling it to people that understand the risk so they don't come back and have a legal right to sue you because somehow the deal didn't come out as you promised. A credited investor either has to make $200,000 a year uh, with their spouse, they have to make 300000 one of those two, or they have to have a million dollars of net worth outside of their home. If they fit one of those three criteria, they can invest. If they can't, and they have to check off a form, I don't, I don't diligently pursue, I don't oversee it, I don't, I don't worry about it, but I do put it in the file. And in my deals, based on the size that we are now, I, I need to make sure that every one of my investors is, quote, legally considered by the, the SEC uh, an accredited investor. Absolutely, 100%. All right, so um, – I, I have a couple of announcements before I thank Gary. Uh, one is, uh, many of you know Philip Edison. They have a podcast called Retail Intel, and I was their guest on their last podcast, so please tune in and listen to that. Uh, the next book club call is March 23rd. It is by another Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk, when the book is crushing it. So go get that book and read it, and the call will be March 23rd. The details for the rest of the year that I have such thus far is on the website, and I'm always taking book recommendations. I want to hear from you guys what books that, that you enjoy reading and learning from. And thanks for all the good feedback from last month. Everyone loved that book and, and are using it in their, in their 
deals and making better deals for it. So good job there. And I hope if everyone can, uh, I'm sure we all appreciate all of the time Gary spent, the book Gary wrote, all of the time he spent today answering all of your questions. And I think, Gary, I can't thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, and I want everyone to know that I did not – I just posted that we that I picked Gary's book. And then I think we were – I don't know where we were at an ICSC and Gary's – or he, I think, Gary, you sent me an email. Thanks for picking my book. <laughs> so I don't know how you heard I picked your book. And then I said, I want you to be on the call. And he was, of course. So you're so gracious and so generous, and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of everyone on the call, Gary. You are just an asset to our industry, and I'm very grateful. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Beth, and thank everyone. All right. Bye-bye.